All right, I'm sure other people have said it, but Happy New Year, though it feels a little awkward. Uh, it's like seven days after the fact. Um, but yeah, ha- Happy New Year. It's, this is kind of cool. That was, I was waiting, I was just going to be like, I could go in the shadows and like sort of be creepy. Yeah, we've been having, we've been having weird issues. Uh, uh, for those of you who are here Christmas Eve uh, at the first service, we had some issues with the lighting, so just everything went completely out. It was, it was like messed up because the point of the sermon was, was like these little pictures, and I was like, there's no more pictures. Let's just see what happens. So if you were here, I actually like described, and I was like, well, you need to picture a rope that turns into a snake. Um, uh, introductory note. As you know, December, we always have our big year-end kind of giving push because um, this church and most nonprofits rely on just massive Decembers financially um, in order to do the mission. And so uh, great, great, great news by God's grace and the generosity of his people. We met the the goal, which is great. Awesome. Should be celebrated. Little nerve-wracking in that um, the last Sunday of the, 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 the last day of the year was a Sunday. So we didn't necessarily like meet the goal. It was like, you, you got an email from me if you're on our list, like with like 48 hours, not yet. <laughs> uh, but it, by God's grace and again, the generosity of, of the people, uh, we met the goal and it sets us up to do the big things that we want to do in 2018. Um, and again, we give not because we try to get something or manipulate God, but Christ is our treasure. And when he becomes your chief treasure, you interact with the treasures of this earth differently. And so it's a sign as the gospel transforms your heart that you become a, a generous person. And so awesome work. I was, was so grateful. I, I literally responded to an email with the word hallelujah, period, and that was it. So yeah, now we're on this series, Marriage, Sex, Gospel, and an introductory note about that. Um, This is not a series, because oftentimes when churches do series on marriage or or family, the series are extremely practical in that it's like, here's seven tips on how to have a better marriage. Here's seven ways to, three days and a new, like three things to do in your marriage and have a new marriage by the end of the week. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. I'm not smart enough. You need to listen to something else. What we're going to do and it's been much more complicated than that, by the way, yeah. by the way. It's what, what I'd like to do today and as we move forward is paint a picture of a biblical vision for what marriage is and looks like, looks like and functions as. And in doing so, there'll be tips like we'll grow, we'll learn some things about marriage, and hopefully it will make things better. But that's not necessarily the primary goal. And in addition, this isn't just a, a series for married people. I want to talk a lot to single people. I want to talk a lot to people who are remarried, who are divorced, people who are maybe single because they've committed to singleness, people who are single who may not want to be. So it, it's for everybody, but we're going to be talking about marriage, sex, and the gospel and everything in between. Now, I've said this again and again, but when we approach the book of Genesis, um, we often bring modern questions to a very ancient text. And the first few pages of the first few pages of the Bible are asking questions and giving answers to things, but they're often not the questions and answers that we are looking for. And so the modern questions are good ones, and we can talk about those. But, but to get the, the Bible to, to say what it wants to say, you have to let it determine the questions and answers. 
And the Bible begins with God creating out of, in Hebrew, a tohu vavohu, this kind of like formless void. And God is creating with rhyme and reason and putting harmony and order into the world. What is often missed is that which, with each consecutive day, God is creating functionally different opposites, functionally different equal opposites that are good for the world. And what I mean by functionally different equal opposites is this. There is light, day, uh, light, dark, day, night, sun, moon, water, land, fish, birds. In each day, there is a pair, functionally different, but equal opposites. So picture the sunset at the beach. Pick your favorite beach, the sunset, and picture the last three, four, five minutes of the sunset. As that sun is setting, it is gorgeous. It's amazing. It's remarkable. If there was a time that you've experienced this with like a, a romantic love, I mean, it just is like wonderful. It's like, oh my goodness, the sun's setting on this beach. You wish you can capture and lock in that moment and the feeling you have, but like everything, the beauty of the sun is fading and fleeting and it sets. However, it is not as if the beauty fades away and is not replaced by something else. The counterpart, the functionally different equal opposite begins. Now picture yourself camping. Now some of you hate camping. Tough. Uh, you, you just gonna have to picture it. I mean, you picture like, um, but you got like the, the expensive camping technology, so it's not rough for you. When you're camping, and it's nighttime, the sky is something else, right? I mean, we, we, live, we don't even live like in a big city, but Gilroy alone creates too much light for you to observe the stars in the sky in the way that God created them. You have to get like hundreds of miles away, but when you do that and you look up at the sky at night, it is majestic, a feeling of transcendence. I mean, just watch a little kid look up at the stars. They want to start naming them and, and looking for movements in the sky. It's something else. There is a particular beauty that the setting sun has. And there's a specific particular beauty that the night sky holds. Both function different, but in creation they are functionally different equal opposites that are meant to come together. And with every consecutive day in the first page of the Bible, you have God creating these pairs. Light, dark, day, night, sun, moon, water, land, fish, birds. What's incredibly important to note is the text says that God observes, he, he sees actually, it's a Hebrew word, ra'ah. God sees the pair and then declares that it's good. And ra'ah has a sense of, it's not just to literally see, but it's to understand as well. So you see and you understand the created pair working together and then God says, that is good. Now, the last functionally different equal opposite in the created order is man and woman. And this one is, is incredible. This is like a work like no other. Now, some of you um, think like, there's no way we compare it to the setting sun or the, the starlit sky. Like, we're just not there. But in the Genesis story, you human beings are made in the very image of God, filled with the divine breath, set apart from the rest of creation. So the pinnacle, the zenith of the creation of functionally different equal opposite, it peaks with the creation of man and woman. 
and they too, like everything else, are meant and designed to come together. We'll get to this in a bit, but that happens when it says the two become one flesh. In sexual union, the two opposites come together and form this beautiful oneness. Now, the way the story is being told, though, it, it kind of plays a trick, a trick on you because in Genesis 1, you're reading the pairs introduced one after another. Light, dark, sun, moon, all, all of that stuff over and over again. But when you get to chapter 2, there's sort of this zooming in on the creation of human beings. And rather than God immediately creating man and woman, he creates man first and he gives him a job. It goes on for like two paragraphs. Adam, you're supposed to do this and that. And oh, here's some things about the beauty of the Garden of Eden, this, 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 this. And if you're a reader, there's an anticipation. You should be saying, where is Adam's functionally different equal opposite? Where is his counterpart? If he is night, where is his day? And it lets that go on just for a little bit to draw attention to the creation of Eve. Then, as the text goes on, it says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Notice the, the word not good. Every single time, it's been good with the pair. There's no woman, so this is not good. Then God says, I will create a helper fit for him. Now, depending upon your background, your tradition, um, what you think about Christianity, or even what you, you think about maleness and, 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 and femaleness or masculine and femininity, you, you kind of are bothered by this word helper. Some of you, not all of you. But if, if you define it in a very weak way, you're like, this is messed up. You know, here it is again. The Bible is oppressive. It, it sets up males. Man was the only one in the garden, and that's God intent, and then he couldn't keep his act together, so he creates this little helper, sidekick, secretary to kind of keep care, care of man, and, and you know, helper. I've, I've joked around about this before, but for some of you, the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word helper is like hamburger helper, and so it's like, what kind of weak vision for womanhood is this? Adam needs a little hamburger helper as a sidekick. What we have to do is remove our chronological snobbery and let this ancient text with ancient wisdom speak to the modern person. And when you let the Bible define its terms, all sorts of amazing things begin to rise to the surface. So, the word helper in Hebrew is ezer. And helper is a decent translation of the Hebrew word ezer, but, but it doesn't do it justice unless you let the Bible define it. The vast majority of times in the Hebrew Old Testament where the word ezer is used, it's not used of women, it's used of God. Like 95% of the occurrences, ezer is a description of God. God calls himself the ezer of Israel in the book of Hosea. The word ezer appears most often in the Psalms, but it's not like, oh man, I need a sidekick. It's Oh God, my enemies surround me. My life is fleeting. Where is my help in time of need? Or Lord God, you are my help, my azer, and my shield. Or in probably the most famous occurrence, Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my azer come from? My azer, my help, 
comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Azar for the psalmist is the maker of heaven and earth. The Azar is God. Now, some of you ladies are like, okay, we can stop the sermon right there. I like that. I like that. I didn't know these types of churches around here. We like that. I'm, pastor said I'm like God. No, wait, wait. Azer means a strength that you do not have in and of yourself. You, you don't have it in yourself. You are not good enough in and of yourself to do the intended task, in the cases of the Psalms, to save yourself. So what Genesis is saying in its first few pages is that man, one side of the pair of the functionally different equal opposites, is insufficient by himself, and he needs his opposite, a strength that he does not have in and of himself. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And if you let help be, if you let, allow health to be defined by the Bible, you know the type of health that Eve is then to, to Adam is a powerful one. It's not a weak one. It's not just a little sidekick. This is powerful language. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. There's an old Jewish rabbinical saying that talks about Eve being taken from the side of Adam as to communicate that Eve and women are not above man or below, but side by side as partners. Now, when God puts Adam down for this, um, he's asleep and he's about to wake up and see his bride, his wife, the love of his life for the first time. Before this, Adam's just been working a garden by himself. He's lonely. He's been kicking it with the goats pretty much. There's like nothing going on. It's, he's got no woman in his life. And God puts him down and gives him this gift. And as he opens his eyes, he sees his bride for the first time, and she's standing there in feminine glory. She's naked. And Adam begins to speak. And what Adam says is Hebrew poetry. You know this in your Bibles because it's centered in the columns. Most of it's uh, anchored on the left margin, but poetry in the Old Testament will be centered. So you got, you got to understand this. The first thing that happens is words of poetry begin to flow from the lips of Adam when he sees his love. Now, dudes, you got to pick up your game. You gotta like pick it up, like, dude, oh my goodness. Like, he didn't even have prep time. He just woke up. This at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of man, Ish. Day, night, sun, moon, Isha, Ish, man, woman. Functionally, different, equal opposites coming together in union. And the union is described as this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is talking about them coming together in sex, but this union is more than just sex. But the actual physical act of sex symbolically embodies everything that the phrase one flesh is trying to communicate. 
And this is a coming together of two people physically, spiritually, biologically, emotionally. There's a fusion of two people. There's no longer a, a, a I or a me. There's we and there's us. One flesh. Physical, spiritual union. You, the fabric of your being becomes stitched together with someone else. This is why, um, and some of you know this, some of you know it intimately, some of you may be knowing it all too recently. This This is why divorce is so painful. Because divorce rips apart the one flesh. The fabric of two individuals is sewn together and there's a tearing away of that. And it it rips at the very core of your being. Now let me preface a couple things. Not only with what I just said, but some of the other things we're going to say today and in this series. Um, I am well aware that the people in this room come from all different walks of life. There are those of you who are single, single because you want to be, single because you don't want to be. Some of you who are married, some of you who have remarried, some of you who have experienced divorce years ago, some of you it's a fresh pain. When we make mistakes and we blow it, I want to be as gracious as possible because truth be told, probably some of you were the victim in something and some of you were probably the, the perpetrator. When we make mistakes or we've been wronged, I want to be as gracious as possible, but simultaneously clearly articulate God's standard to the best of my ability. And especially for the young people in the room, you need to hear God's standard again and again and again and again and again because every message in this world is telling you something different. And so when I bring stuff up, it is not to bring up old pain or wounds or to make you feel guilty. There's a reason why God says lifelong monogamy between the functionally different equal opposites for, for their lives is so essential because divorce is a horrific thing. It tears apart at your core. And for those of you who have experienced that, you know exactly what I'm talking about and you wouldn't wish it upon anybody. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, I'm about to say some, some, some things that, it was funny, George, you, you, you said it, it uh, uh, you said it like, it, this should be obvious to, to some of you. And for some of you, this will be absolutely obvious. But there'll be some of you, uh, especially if you're younger, especially if you're younger, and especially if you go to a university and believe everything the professors tell you. This, this will not be obvious Um, And it may be controversial, and for some of you, it'll probably be offensive. Um, And I want to show me grace as I do this, but um, I can't tell you anything else but what I believe the Bible's firmly establishing. Now, some of you, when you hear it, it's going to be like, I'm going to say something super controversial. Some of you are going to be like, no kidding. Everyone believes that. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows uh, that. But I'm telling you, people under the age of 30 right now, especially under the age of 25, are being brought up with a different set of ethics. The whole point of the creation account is to demonstrate the coming together of functionally 
different, equal opposites. Each have their own particular beauty, and when they come together, the beauty is even kind of multiplied and brought out to the front. Men, as I say it, some of you are going to laugh, but I, I, I mean it seriously. Men and women are different. They, they are biologically different. And, and right now, there's something going on, and it's taken over. Not, not all, but that's a big chunk of higher education that says, no, 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 no. Men and women are not just equal, which we believe and I believe, but they're also functionally identical. They're the same thing. And wherever we see differences between men and women, it's because of some social construct and all kind of like gender roles and ideologies that are wrapped up with social constructs. And so the world will be a better place if we could just do away with all the social constructs and realize not only are men and women equal, they're functionally identical, they're the same. And it's, it's just not the case. There are massive differences between men and women. And right now, particularly, you young women are being told a message that if, if you're not happy, if you've ever experienced anything wrong or a man has ever mistreated you in any way, which, by the way, they do a lot, they're telling you it's because of all these old kind of thoughts that are bound up with gender and, and, and biology, and you'll be more happier when you believe, leave behind whatever you thought a woman was and do and act just like a man in every possible way. tie that up simultaneously with the fact that the majority of our men have forgotten what godly masculinity looks like. In a culture where men are not men, women will try to be men and be miserable. Women will be forced to fill the gaps where men are failing. And I'll just give you one simple example. The vast majority of single parents in this country are women. It's the, it's, statistically, it's the man who leaves. And, then, and again, single parents, I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty, but you know the weight and the burden of trying to raise kids by yourself. Majority of single parents, single mothers working two and three jobs, living in poverty just to get enough to, to, to get by. And so the Bible says there's a beauty and a function and purpose for men and a beauty and function and purpose for women, and the beauty is exemplified when they come together in embodied sexual union, which symbolically stands for much more, and they do that as a man and woman committed to lifelong monogamy, sex with no one else except each other for all time, till death do you part. What God brings together, let no man separates. And again, I understand in this room, because of marriage and divorce and because of the rate at which people are having premarital sex, the minority of people in this room are, are actually people in that type of construct, the minority, very, very, very few of us. This is just statistically speaking, even at a church. And so what, what I want you to know is that uh, God is gracious in all of our failures, but there's a reason why he's established his standards, and it's this. When functionally different equal opposites commit to lifelong monogamy, the world is a better place. And I don't mean just a little bit better of a place. I mean human beings and humanity and culture flourishes when people commit to these standards. If you were raising, my, parent, my parents divorced, and um, so I, I, I know that, and I love my parents. They, they, for the second part of my like, 
childhood and teen years, they were, they were separate. Um, but you need to know that, that that takes a tremendous toll upon children. Now, some of you know that's obvious, but there's a whole bunch of other information that's saying not. I read an article on the benefits of single parenting over traditional marriage. Like, are you kidding me? It's a weight and a burden. It's difficult. And some of you are doing an amazing job at it. You should all be applauded. But it's not something that was God's intent. When children are brought up outside of a situation where there's a loving mom and loving dad committed to lifelong marriage to each other, to the marriage and to the kids, there's a host of problems that go on. And again, your children aren't destined to this. By the grace of God and church community, you can overcome statistics. Um, But... In, in single parenting households, children are more likely to struggle with depression, violent behavior. They're more likely to have suicidal thoughts and tendency, be involved with gang activity, statistically more likely to have lower grades, get involved in criminal activity. They're more likely to grow up and become adults who live in poverty. They're more likely to have children out of wedlock and to continue this cycle. Their marriages are more likely to end in divorce. They're likely to get in abusive relationships. They're likely to have physical health problems. And that could go on and on and on and on. In fact, there's research that shows that if you are in poverty and you're in a really tough situation, if you can manage to grow up and get a full-time job, doesn't matter what it pays, and, and get married and then choose to have kids, if you can do that and graduate high school, if you are in poverty, there's an 82% chance you will be middle, middle class very quickly. Because all of those other things wreak havoc on the economic stability of of the house. Right now in America, 62% of children are growing up in households where the the biological mom and dad are still there married together. 62%. That number has has, uh, gone down every year since the 60s. The 1960s, when we decided to have different sexual ethics that were so liberating and free. Ever since then, there's been a slow, steady decline. And this number will continue unless something radically changes. God's plan is for the flourishing of human beings. Oftentimes Christians think like, oh, Christians, we have these like strict sexual ethics and they're enslaving and they're they're so old school. No, no, no. True freedom and fulfillment is found in following God's sexual ethics. Now here's the thing. Way back in Genesis... God creates functionally different equal opposites and he sees them, he ra'ahs them and says this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. At the fall, what occurs? Eve looks at the tree, looks at the fruit and she sees it with her eyes. She ra'ahs it with her eyes and decides that it is pleasing to observe and she desires it and says that it's good. It's good in her eyes. So, so this is where the ancient wisdom becomes very practical for the modern person. God had a plan, a map for this, but human beings then decided to decide what's good in their own eyes. And the fallout is felt. Right now, in American culture, human beings have disregarded God's plans, his institutions, They've looked at different sexual practices and said, that looks good. I want it. And we're living in the aftermath of that. 
And I'm not talking about like one particular sexual sin or anything like that. I'm talking about it all. Like as a whole, human beings choose to do sexually what makes them happy, what gratifies them. And every sort of message and narrative that we hear in stories and movies affirms that. Like you don't realize it. Like you say like, some of you are going to be really upset now. Uh, Like 95% of like kids' stories 95% 95% of like Disney movies, crossing the line now, in their narrative arc have some type of component that says, always follow your heart, do what makes you happy no matter what, don't let anyone tell you you shouldn't live the way you want. Follow your heart, always be the true you. Look it, I'm glad Jesus Christ died for the real me. Because that real me needed someone to be nailed to a cross because I was a stupid idiot in rebellion to God himself. And my true self needs to be redeemed, not amplified. And our culture is bent on telling, especially our young people, do what makes you happy. And so what happens to children that are brought up like that? Well, they're in a marriage and it's been rough for a year. And even their Christian friends say, hey, we know this last year has been rough for you. You know it's been rough. You should do what makes you happy. You should, you know, so-and-so, she, she's never been a good, good wife. And do you want to re- live the rest of your life like that? Do what makes you happy. And what's worse, sometimes there's kids involved, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds. And again, I know we're a diverse group. God's grace is immense, but we, we don't go light on his standard. We as a culture have decided to determine sexual ethics by what makes the individual happy and not what's best for marriages, families, community, and culture. Who pays the price? The children always will pay the price. And so we tell people to gratify themselves sexually, whatever it may be, rather than saying, you know, this might actually not be about your happiness. And let me say this. A culture that does not set the welfare of children as the highest priority is a culture destined to die, and deservingly so. And the clock's ticking on ours. Because we have decided as a whole, as a people, that personal sexual fulfillment is greater than lifelong monogamy between men and women, which creates the flourishing of human beings. Picture what it would be like in um, a world where, let's say hypothetically, like everyone could stay married together, like all the marriages work out. And, and, and I know I'm talking like this is impossible because of, because of all the problems, but I'm saying hypothetically, imagine like if everyone signed up for God's plan and stuck to it. That world, all those stats that I read, they begin to disappear. You don't have moms tucking kids at night saying, Daddy loves you. But dad hasn't been there for two months, and so mom knows she's kind of lying to her kids because she doesn't have the heart to break it to them. You don't have kids being sent back and forth in the foster care system, can never have a safe, secure place to rest their head. You don't have orphanages, because even if tragedy were to strike and mom and dad were to die in a horrific accident, there's tons of stable families that are safe and secure that could take those children in. 
You have the bettering of humanity by following God's law. Young people, you've been told this invented term that there's something called safe sex. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there is safer versions of There's definitely safer things you could do. So I'm not like being one of these weird like, just, just, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying this is this. There is nothing you could do that is truly bulletproof. And most importantly, there's not a condom in the world that can protect your heart. There's not a condom in the world that can protect your heart. And I can tell you how many young people have been devastated in broken and unhealthy relationships because they entered into one fleshness way too soon. And some of you, it might have been a long time, decades ago, but you remember, yeah, I was in a messed up relationship, but he or she was my first, and it was really hard to get out. When we follow God's law, the world flourishes. Now, we live in this completely me-centered sexual ethic that produces me-centered marriages, and the answer to that is to fight that with gospel-centered sexual ethics and gospel-centered marriage principles. Paul the Apostle, way after the book of Genesis was written, reflects on the content of Genesis and says this. He says a number of things. I'm only giving you a portion. You can read the rest of five on your own. Um, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I want to focus on this first line. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That is the antithesis to the me-centered sexual ethic. The way we're being brought up today is what makes you sex sexually happy, do it. For Paul, it begins with you look at your partner, you look at, in this case, it's husbands looking, husbands, you're called to look at your wife and say, my job is to love you as Christ loved the church. To love you enough to, to die for you, to love you enough to take three nails in my flesh. That's the type of, that's a, that's a Christian husband kind of love. Now, Paul sets this up wonderfully because sometimes we're like, hey, Isaac, no, that's all good, man, but bro, you don't, you don't know my wife, eh? Dude, she's crazy. She's, she's, I mean, dude, my wife, oh my goodness. You gotta have a heart like Jesus to love her, you know? <laughs> listen, listen to what Paul is doing here. When did Christ die for the church? When did Christ die for you? when you had your act together, when you were so lovely and wonderful and beautiful, or, were you, or when you were spiritually adulterous rebel who hated God. Christ died for you at the, the chief moment of your sin. And so husbands don't get like, hey, you don't know option. My wife's really bad. No, no, the example is Jesus. So you love her at all costs, even when it's bad. Now wives, please don't take advantage of this. Don't, don't, don't be like this. I ain't, I'm, I'm not doing this, 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 this no more. I know we had this, like, I was going to do that. No, you're doing it all. Christ is my all in all. Why don't you be my all in all? Yeah? Go make me a sandwich, hubby. Yeah? Serve me like Christ loved the church. You know, it's not, 
because Paul also talks about respect and submission for the, for the wife to the husband, and he also talks about mutual submission to one another. So all of those stuff is intertwined in this stuff. So you can't take advantage of like, like the system. But a gospel-centered understanding begins not with gratification of self or self-satisfaction, but the service of others. He goes on. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And this is the, the peak of it. Therefore, this is a direct quote from Genesis, which we already looked at. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is like crazy, crazy good here. Paul is saying that when, when marriages do what they're supposed to do, when, when marriages are, are working in the healthy biblical fac- fashion, then there's lifelong service and fidelity and faithfulness between a husband and a wife, that, that then, in some mysterious, profound way, points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says it's a mystery. In other words, when a marriage is doing what God wants it to do, it is a living, walking, breathing picture of the gospel. Why? Because there's two people serving, self-sacrificing, serving each other, and that's exactly what Jesus does. And, and how do you know what real love and self-sacrifice looks like? You, you invert the picture. Then you look at Jesus, and you look at how Jesus loves his people and what he's done for them. When you are doing the one flesh thing right, you are a living, walking, breathing picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe when our marriages do that, we, have, we start producing something that's beautiful and attractive to the world. This is, this is one of the interesting things. In the early church, the, the sexual ethics were, were crazy. Like in Rome, you could do whatever you want. It's, it's much like we are. But the Christian marriages began to be attractive to pagan culture. They would say Christians have these strict sexual ethics, and they didn't see the strict sexual ethics as oppressive. They said, we want some of, we want some of that. Look at how good that guy's life is. he got a horrible job, but he's always happy. He's got this love of God thing and a love for wife, and it's, it's, it's incredible. We want some of that. How does that work? And when Christian marriages do that, people will ask. And the temptation, and don't do this, be like, well, here's the seven key secrets that I have to doing it. Because those might be wise and help. You need those. But you need to start with the premise. If not for the grace of God and his mercy in my life and his example of what love is, I'd be lost. It's the grace of God and the example of Jesus. That's step one and step two. All the other stuff helps. Those, that comes later. But it starts with that commitment. Where we're at in our culture is a very, very bad place and difficult place. And again, I'm not, I don't want people to, to feel guilty. I don't want people to feel bad. Um, a lot of brokenness in this room, a lot of mistakes in this room. But God has clearly given us a standard. And the wisdom of Genesis says that the mess we got ourselves in started when a human being decided what was good and pleasing to the eye. And right now, 
our culture does the exact same thing. As long as it makes you happy, as long as it fulfills you, then it's all good. And it's starting to spin out of control. It's, it's starting to get really crazy. I can't talk about comfortably the type of stuff that people are engaging in, believing in, arguing for. Couldn't do it in this open of an audience because there's so much just whack stuff. And so as we go forward, I want to, in this series, I want to start with this. Everyone in this room, because we're all participants in the fall, everyone in here is sexually broken in one way or another. All of us, one way or another. Two, until we start talking about these issues, there, there's a taboo nature that kind of surrounds sex. And the rest of the world talks about sex and, and all the time. But the church kind of doesn't do that when we do. It's kind of like, should we be talking about this? Or someone says something, should I be giggling? Or like, I don't know. What's... We, we have to break the tab, taboo nature. Because I know in this room there's tons of, there, there's tons of sexual struggles whether it's in, in, in your marriage with, with pornography, with, with addictions, whatever it may be. We're, we're all sexually broken in needing of Christ's mercy to day by day by day restore us to his image. And that's a process. Theologically, that process is called sanctification. And no one in this room is perfectly sanctified. So we all have to start with some acknowledgements. And as we go through this, we want to paint a, a picture of the biblical vision for marriage, children, family, singleness, all of that stuff. Um, hold up the high standard and show grace and failures and then draw again people to the high standard. Before I close, three words to three different types of people in this room. Um, first, a word for you married couples. Whether it's your first marriage or one after that, it, do, it doesn't matter. I, this applies to you if you have a, a marriage that is anywhere better than like really, really, really bad marriage. Like it could be even a little bad and this still applies to you. And it actually applies to you if you're in a really horrific marriage too, but I have a different word for you in a moment. But if you're in a bad marriage all the way to a great marriage, today, um, make a commitment to say, I want a marriage that mirrors the gospel. And I, am, I, I wanna make a commitment at the beginning of this year to begin to attempt to love my spouse like Jesus loves me and shows me grace and mercy. And you make it a goal as a husband and wife to say we want a marriage that is a living, walking, breathing picture of the gospel and mercy of Jesus Christ. So that's for you married folks. And so you could have a great marriage and you're like, oh yeah, we can't wait to do that. We already read Ephesians 5 and talked about this. We're so excited. And even if you're in one of those situations that's rough. You can still try to make this commitment. Second word is for people who are single. And, it's, and I'm talking about a particular type of single, someone who is committed to singleness. Because um, there's some people who are single because uh, they, they want to be and they're committed to that. And there's some people who they aren't, they're looking for someone or they, they've been recently divorced or lost someone, but it's not a place that they, they want to be. I'm talking about people who have committed themselves to singleness. This is the minority, but the church needs a lot more of these people, and we need them yesterday. We need people committed to lifelong singleness. That sounds weird sort of in the modern kind of church world, but the Bible talks a lot about it. The Bible talks about men and women who devoted themselves completely to the Lord. And so if you're single 
and you're, you're able to do that right now, you need to know that all this talk of marriage, it's not like, oh, you're, you're left out. Marriage is an institution created by God and inserted into the created order to point people to the gospel. If you are single and committed to the Lord himself, you are bypassing the symbol and going directly to the actual. That's why Paul says, if you could not get married, that's better because then you could be fully devoted to the Lord. The problem is hardly anyone could do that. But if you are one of those people, no, you bypass the symbol and the metaphor and go directly to the source. The most influential human being who lived the most fulfilled life full of meaning and purpose was a single 30-year-old man who died. The second most influential person to ever walk the face of the earth, Paul the Apostle, was a man committed to singleness and devotion to the Lord. We need more of you. Men and women, you might be called to singleness. And so my word for you is, you're never left out. I know sometimes church culture makes it difficult to be single, because even in the church world, everyone's always like talking about when you're going to hook up with somebody. You already have hooked up with somebody. You're blood-bought, saved by the grace of God. Third type of person is someone who is single um, and they don't want to be. It's because maybe um, you, you've experienced the pain of divorce, maybe the pain of a lost spouse, or maybe you just haven't been able to find the right person. Maybe you've been in a lot of bad relationships. Maybe you've been in no relationships. But, but deep down, there's, there's a wound there. The Bible gives us this image where Jesus is the good and faithful husband to his people, the bride. In the midst of all the mess that that is your life, all the pain and struggle, Jesus is the good and faithful husband who dies for you. And so my word for you is this. Jesus knows your faults, your mistakes. He knows your insecurities. He knows how even years after the fact, sometimes you still cry yourself to sleep. He knows that maybe you had three or four kids and then your husband left and now you look at your body in the mirror and you're ashamed because you'll go, my body will never look like it did before kids and no one's ever gonna love me like when I was young and I'm not pretty, I'm too old. He knows the loneliness, the shame. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. Do you realize that? He knows what it's like to be betrayed and handed over, left aside. He knows all of those things and looks at you with your faults, your insecurities, and still says, this one belongs to me. And I go through hell and back to save this one. If anyone ever doubts my love for this one, they can look to the cross because that's where I demonstrated how much one this one is worth to me. You are more loved than you can ever imagine. This room is filled with the diversity of people. But the gospel of Jesus Christ meets every one of us and says you can find grace and you can find hope and you can find a love that is unlike any love you've ever experienced. And so as we move forward in this series, those are the building blocks. We're all different. We all got issues. Jesus Christ is here. He is faithful, gracious. He doesn't want us to always stay the same and follow our heart no matter what. He says, follow me, take my hand. Be like me, not your true self. 
And in doing so, guess what? You'll get happiness and fulfillment thrown in on the side. But you've got to learn to lose your life first before you can find it. I'm going to pray, and I want everyone here to go in God's peace. And I know there's different, different people who are like super happy. Oh, man, I love that challenge, baby. We're going to love each other and be a living, walking, breathing example of the gospel. I love that verse about one flesh. Going to go home and practice. And there's some of you who, who need Christ to be the faithful spouse to you right now, and, and, and he will do that. He is faithful and true. Father God, I pray blessings over every single person in this room, immense blessings of comfort, joy, um, inspire couples to have the best marriages, comfort the broken and hurting in this room, uh, convict and inspire the young people in this room. They've been taught systematically a lie about their identity, about fulfillment, about meaning, about sexual ethics. So change their hearts and mind and let them strive after you and realize that following you is always worth it. Count the cost, it is worth it. Lord, we love you. We thank you that at the culmination of the ages, you came down from heaven, you sought us and died on a cross to buy us with your blood. And we give you praise and we honor the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful, wonderful day and new year.